I'm Tracy McCabe, and I teach in the English department, and I also teach in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program. Uh, so I'm very happy that Randy asked me to host this event, uh, this incredibly special and wonderful, wonderful event that um, I understand Randy and Miwa are especially uh, to be thanked for putting this together. So we're going to be, um, today, be having our open mic first. Then we're going to have a special student performance, um, followed by our reading by our guest writer. Um, and then after the event, there's going to be some spontaneous, uh, workshoppy, talk back about writing thing, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so for our open mic, uh, Let's just start off, do this in the order here. Uh, Raphael, where are you? All right. Is this like the kind of thing where you want to use the mic? Yeah, use the mic. Perfect, perfect, all right. I just wanted to be obedient to what the media people want us to do. Um, I'm gonna adjust this. Hey everybody, um, like Professor McKay said, I'm Raphael. Mathis. Um, shout out to Randy Tusatal for putting on this event. Um, I wasn't going to perform, but Davinia Dawes, who's not here right now, shaking my head, uh, said, I feel like you don't perform because, you know, that's what you do. I'm like, Davinia, I'm busy though. And she's like, for Raphael, that's what you do. So this is not you. She's like, don't forget, you know, you were doing this before you started doing everything else. So um, it's just a short, uh, quick poem. It's based off of this project that I'm doing where I like ask people to give me 10 words and then I make a poem out of it. Uh, so this is one of those things that happen based off of 10 words. So I hope you guys enjoy. Gratitude to this moment. You know that moment. That moment that snatches you by your collar in such a smooth motion. You don't even fully comprehend that you are not in this present state anymore, immersed in emotion, overtaken by senses, wrapped, tied, held hostage, yearning for the fullness of that moment. Yet again, your mind gives it a tug to revive, to receive maximum gratification at the bay of consciousness waiting to cross the threshold, the line. You want to break through the barrier. That tranquil state is your destination. The safety of that moment pulls you deeper until reality, reality clear, jolts you back, jarring you. Almost forgetting the moment is of the past, realizing the responsibility of the present, desiring the next opportunity to tap into that moment. Thank you, guys. Okay, next up we have Charles
business call um, changed the best. Um, it came, the first three stanzas were something I um, I written previously, and then I decided to like, make a kind of like a song out of it. So it's like a song poem that I'm not singing. It's just, there's like a, a chorus to it. Okay. Digging up a saint memories by rereading old messages is like meeting you again for the very first time. My emotions come back to life, and I catch myself saying, why did I say that? Maybe if I said, insert phrase, things would be different. Nonetheless, as you hold his hand, when you mirror my smile as I wave high, I will be happy for you, because I know you reread these messages too. Perhaps the author changed the ending of our story, our resolutions to tab it lovely for me. Revise the second draft to somehow change our timeline. Matter of fact, just to try to make you laugh instead of making you put your whole month in the blue lines. But I guess I was blind. And at the face of facts, I can't change the past. And that's the end of that. Within my top drawer, a handwritten letter from you. Lace with the emotions that are now past tense and your perfume. Inside of it has all of our insiders, how I used to make fun of your hyena laughter. And every sentence brings forth an anecdote. I want to hold on to these memories, but they're nothing but soap. I put the letter back, and I think this, and I sit alone. Maybe these memories weren't meant to be written in stone. But I can't help but think that. Perhaps the author changed the ending of our story. Our resolutions are tabbed and for thee. Revise the climax to somehow change our timeline. Matter of fact, I should have tried to make you laugh instead of making you put your whole book to the blue lines. But I guess I was blind. And at the face of facts, I can't change the past. And that's the end of that. Now here comes the all too familiar sigh. I'll never understand why they call it goodbye. Digging up your saint memories by repeating old messages is like meeting you again for the very first time. Rewind the mirror glances when your name didn't have a face. Think backstroke when you wrote that love book of romances in that first handshake. But sometimes, once, once is enough. So when you hold his hand and when you mirror my smile as I wave high, I will be happy for you because you wrote this song too. for an agonizing five minutes. He traveled the well-worn path to the bedroom, 
grabbed his glasses off of his nightstand. Fumbling in the ashtray, he put a butt to his chapped lips and lit it. The smoke curled up and stirred the dust, dancing in the stale air. As the chair went out, he stabbed it into the mound of carcasses in the ashtray. Back in the bedroom, sorry, back in the bathroom, he turned the shower on hot and stepped it. He slapped the shampoo bottle into his open palm once and twice, and squeezed out the last doll and lathered it into what remained of his full head of hair. He scooped some suds from his head and smeared it between the folds in his skin. Lifting up his stomach, he half-heartedly massaged his groin. With a sigh, he rinsed himself off, turned off the water, and stepped under the plush shrub next to the tub. The rough towel scoured his body, and any folds that he missed were left with the dampness that would be with him all day. Okay, next up we have uh, Macau. Yeah, really? <laughs> 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 
sorry, I'm not the name that was called. Say um, your name. I'm Davinia Doss. <laughs> sorry, I'm very short too. Okay, no. Um, Wait, we want to hear the whole Okay, so I want to give a huge shout out to Ariana and Randy to my two friends who came to listen to me. And I wrote this poem this morning at 6.15 after reading the bio of the author's name. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm only saying that because I thought that your bio was great. So I don't know. This is that. I don't usually title my poems when I title this title for Baby Don't It Feel Good, and I took an edit for the first time from my manager in the mailroom, so shout out to Dom. <laughs> <laughs> um, title for Baby Don't It Feel Good. I wrap myself into you like the lotion you use to nourish your melanin because you believe in it. I wrap the doors of my temple around you like protection and affection that love child because the madness in my thighs are drawn to your heart and I'm consumed. <coughs> I kiss you in your intimate places so you know that in the room of a million, I'm still by your side. I'm not going nowhere. I acknowledge your entire existence, and it becomes this new, unified, sapient, with my own being because two rights between us. I do you like I know I can, and like I know you love, because I feel you think high up that you slide into my massive bathtub with the jets on the side, because I like to show off. It's worth the energy. My last goal week for you is my click goes close to you because the two, the two can't stand to communicate. Or maybe that's exactly what they're doing, communicate. That one is sacrificed for the other to live in a way that only you have rewarded me like. And baby, daddy, baby, speaking of sacrifice, do we measure the time spent wondering if we'll soar into heaven together or if this is just an earthly thing? Although I see you as an alien prototype, under 3,000 pain in my mind as a true blue love. <clears throat> Should I use my pussy and my heart and my time as a convincing factor that you've seen the need, yet know you can do it out? Because we know what this is, and we know what this was, and like your sky voice. You say it's love so deep down, like this right here, like that ocean floor, like as dark as my pearl, like as heavy as my soul, like as feathers as my kiss. Fires your love, don't in your erection. God damn it, babe, don't it feel good? Thank you. <laughs> I get it, Jess. 
Please, stop looking at me like I'm insane. I just, just explain it once more. I think I need to hear it again. God, I sigh, shifting my weight in my seat. Okay, I think the cat is David. Molly takes a sip from her mug, eyeing me over the rim. I can tell she thinks I've lost each and every one of my marbles. When she puts her cup down, she turns her attention to the cat. I turn to look at him too. He sits at the edge of the dining room, casually licking up the length of his leg. He pauses and stares back at Molly, his eyes unblinking. The two are locked together like this for a while, until he loses interest and goes back to licking. I fold my arms and put my head down on the table, groaning. Oh God, I am insane. No, no, I don't think so. I guess he kinda looks like David. Molly keeps her eyes on him, watching. Shit, I don't mean he looks like David, I say maybe a little louder than intended. I lift my head to see her with her hands up a little, averting her eyes, and okay, okay, sorry, expression. I wave it off. Sorry. No. I don't think he looks like him. I think he just is him, you know? He does the same things. Like what? It's like, I don't know, okay? I can't explain it. He just kind of does. I push my palms against my eyes. Glinting white flecks and ebbing bands of blue and green play across the darkness. I don't know, Malls. Maybe I'm losing it. Maybe this is some type of mental breakdown. Fuck. There's a slight squeak in the chair as a weight lands heavily on my lap. I look down at the cat, balancing himself on my bare thighs, claws slightly extended, leaving little white lines on my skin. He's purring as he starts to rub his head on me, nuzzling his face into my chest. Molly lets out one of her characteristic snorts. There you go, she says. That's definitely something David would do. I'm sitting in the waiting room of the hospital, still in my polo and khakis from work. I fidget a little with the bottom hem of my shirt, feeling the cheap material under my fingers. I'm concentrating on it, maybe too intently, trying to avoid making eye contact with anyone else in the room. A couple of kids sit across from me, squirming in their seats as an older woman tries to keep them clamped down with a skinny, sagging arm. I can't stop thinking about the piles of laundry at home. It's been stacking up all week in the corner of our bedroom. Shirts and pant legs and mismatched socks spilling over the top of the wicker basket. I only got halfway through sorting darks, brights, reds, whites, towels before leaving them crumpled in heaps on the floor. Not to mention the sheets I stripped off the bed now sitting in the washing machine growing damp and dank with every passing minute. Plus it means I'll still have to put them in the dryer and remake the bed when I get home. I crack my knuckles. Left hand, right hand, thumb, wrist. Reach around into my purse for a notepad and pen. I might as well start the grocery list while I'm thinking about it. David and I have been surviving off of instant pho and apples for the last week, and I can't keep up. I should make something nice, one of David's favorites, like mac and cheese. I need milk, butter, good cheese. I find a gum wrapper that can suffice for my list, and then a pen. I press hard on the tip, try to get the ink to start flowing, scribbling up the wrapper to no avail. The ink is dried up. I let it drop to the ground before I start to cry. I never thought of the heart as a particularly fickle thing. Yeah, of course it falters, but not without reason. A fat man's cholesterol clogged arteries finally giving away, a woman collapsing in the street because her type A personality couldn't fight the stress level anymore. Long story short, foreseeable, understandable, all the warning signs along the way flashing. They're not supposed to go from zero to 100, or I guess more accurately, will perfectly average 128 to zero. It's fuzzy how long David was alone before someone found him, far up on his favorite running trail. 
He was already dead when the next runner found him. A young guy, not even out of high school, long hair pushed back with a neon green sweatband. I feel bad for him, really. I wouldn't want to be a young kid finding a dead body while you're all alone. But either way, David died alone. Save, save for the trees and the critters hiding in the underbrush, probably just waiting and wishing that this giant stranger would go away. I've gone back to that spot, directed by the headband kid, where he was found and lied down in the leaves and the mud right there in the middle of the path, trying to figure out what was the last thing he looked at. It's nothing but various shades of brown, save a couple of blue patches way up in the sky. I forget if that day was overcast or not. Doctors call it sudden cardiac arrest. The blanket term loosely meaning your heart really fucked up big time and now you're dead even though there's no reasonable answer as to why. The doctors try to explain why it happened to him. Post-collegiate athlete, lifelong vegan, logically the last person social Darwinism would try to erase. But terms like ventricular fibrillation and mitocarditis sound too sterile and cut to encompass everything that was his life. Leaving the hospital alone is much harder than coming in alone. Maybe there was a glimmer of hope somewhere, a thin silver thread that I clung to desperately with both hands until it slipped through them so fast I left a little red line across my palms. I get outside the sliding doors and find a bench to sit on, not yet ready to face the quiet car ride home. There's a biting breeze from March, offset only by the occasional pockets of sunlight that break past the clouds. I pull my coat tightly around me and shove my hands into my pockets, fiddling with my keys and the gum wrapper. I start watching people come in and out, mostly in pairs. One woman walks in, high heels clicking on the cement, carrying a bright bunch of balloons, foil ones filled with helium, colored, brightly, brightly colored faces with, with smiles that say, get well soon. Balloons have always freaked me out. Ever since I was four and asked my older cousin Tommy to help me blow up the pink and lavender balloons for my birthday party. No way, he said, crossing his arms over his skinny chest, indignant. They're dangerous. Dangerous? I asked him, staring at the little pink balloons still in my hand. It looked relatively harmless. Yeah, really dangerous. When you blow up a balloon, a part of your soul gets sucked inside. <laughs> and he made a dramatic noise, sucking in his cheeks until he looked like a fish. My heart skipped a couple of beats, and I looked at the little balloons I had already made scattered all over the floor. Tommy saw my gaze, and a grin spread across his face. Uh-oh, Jesse, he said, picking up a balloon. You better make sure all of these don't pop. He squeezed the balloons with both hands until it erupted, ringing in my ears. I screamed, frantically diving for balloons, trying to snatch them away before Tommy popped more. My pathetic wailing and the gunshot of the pop balloons finally alerted my mother who sent Tommy away and held me, stroking my hair and reassuring that no, my soul was not in the balloons. My cousin was just being mean. I wasn't well convinced, and when she left, I carefully untied all of the remaining balloons and sucked the air out of them. I never lost my suspicion of balloons as soul-sucking traps, refusing every time a waitress at a local Applebee's would offer me one of the bunches of them by the cash register. When I was seven, my whole family went to a Christmas party for my grandfather's company. Papa was my best friend, and I spent the whole evening with my hand glued to his, smiling whenever he would occasionally lean over and whisper, his mustache tickling my ear, don't tell anyone else, but you're my favorite grandkid. He would always tell me that. At the end of the evening, his parents pushed the tired arms of children through their coat sleeves. Papa handed me a bunch of balloons from the table we were at. Here you go, sweetie, I got you these. I froze, terrified. Oh God, Papa's soul. 
Not wanting to leave him at the party space, I took the balloons, clutching them tightly. We all said our goodbyes, and my parents led me out to the car. I turned to my dad. Daddy, hold my balloons for me, I said, holding them out to him so he could, so I could buckle myself in like a big girl. He, told, he took them, and I turned to grab my seatbelt. With a feigned, oh no, Dad let the balloons go all at once, and in a matter of seconds they were swallowed up by the night sky. I burst into tears trying to explain to snot and spittle that they were Papa, that, that, that was Papa's soul. How could you, Daddy, how could you? I was in hysterics for the rest of the night, and Mom glared at Dad, who still thought it was kind of funny, the whole car ride home. My fears weren't eased at all the next day when Papa called me to say he was sick and wouldn't be able to come pick me up for our Sunday morning play date. In the years we've been doing these Sunday excursions, he never missed one, and now, the night after accidentally letting his soul go, he was sick. I moped around, catatonic to any reassurance. Not even after Papa got better and was able to make our next play date did I forget about the balloons and their soul-sucking nature. Merely just wrote it off as a lucky close call. A firm pressure against my calf shakes me from my daydream, pulling me back down to the bench outside of the hospital. I looked down at a little blue tabby cat circling around my legs, purring audibly. Oh, hello, little fellow, I say to him. I click my, tongues, my tongue a few times so he looks up at me with pretty tawny eyes. They startle me a little. They're oddly human, with huge round pupils, not like the typical cat-like slits. I think, they look, I think they look like a similar shade to David's, which seems a little eerie but oddly comforting at the moment. I put my hand down next to him and keep talking. What's up, mister? Huh? What's up, pretty little boy? I haven't formally checked or anything, but I feel pretty certain he's a he. He gives a little chirp, almost like an affirmation, and presses his head hard against my hand. I pick him up and hold him against my chest. I look around to see where he might have come from. The hospital is just a few blocks away from some houses, and there's an apartment complex within sight. He still has all his claws. He's not fixed now that I have, in fact, checked that he's a he. So I assume he's a stray. He's well-fed, though, not absolutely skinny. He's very soft, though it feels heavy with the outdoors. I can't just leave him here alone. I start walking to my car, talking to him the whole time. Back home, I set him down to unlock the front door, and he strolls in before I can even put my foot through the entranceway. Oh, I see. You think you own the place, don't you? I say out loud to him, laughing a little. My guest ignores me and strolls through the kitchen, licking his lips. Sorry I don't have any cat food. I wasn't expecting any company, I say. I start looking through the cupboards for something edible for the both of us. I wind up just feeding us both slices of ham from the bag, taking out a piece, tearing it in half, and eating one half while he nibbles on the other. He's also interested in a bag of goldfish in my purse, so we share that as well. Is this pathetic? I ask as he licks the salt off my fingers when the bag's gone. Oh my god, I'm not turning into a crazy cat lady for you. This is a special situation, and as soon as I get, I'm going out, I'm getting you your own food. <laughs> I get up and find the proper piece of paper and a pen that works, and write out my real shopping list this time, mixing the ingredients for mac and cheese and adding cat food. This reminds me of the laundry list upstairs that, was, that I was fixating on earlier, and I start climbing the steps up to our bedroom. I let my hand rest on the doorknob, though, hesitating to enter. On the other side of the door, I noticed the scene of the last place I knew David alive, witnessed through half-closed eyes at the bleary 5 a.m. A flash of white thighs from the bottom of his running shorts, perpetually dry lips pressed against my forehead, whispered exchange of, I love you, the smell of toothpaste and deodorant, 
the sound of his heels and toes clicking with every step until they were finally dulled by the click of the door latching shut. I think about the sound for a long time. His ankles always clicked when he walked, something I made fun of him for whenever possible. You would make the worst murderer ever, I joked, whenever he would come walking into the room while I was reading, silent, save for his clicking. Your victims would always be able to hear you coming. I laugh a little, holding on to a funny moment, and open the door. Everything is completely normal and surreal all at the same time. It's a mess to start with. Just like I was expecting, clothes were everywhere in piles on the floor, semi-sorted, but clearly shuffled a bit by David this morning while he was searching for running clothes in the dark, not turning on the lights so he wouldn't wake me up too much. It's all exactly like we left it. And strangely, I feel like it should look different. Like the room should know that something major has occurred and it should somehow palpably shift in relation to it. It's like I want it to look different than this, than this perfectly preserved final morning of David. I take a deep breath, trying to calm myself and settle for doing laundry. I collect a pile of clothes, switch around the sheets into the dryer, and wait, busying myself with mindless tidying, turning on the TV for some background noise. I feel oddly comforted by the meaningless problems of the Kardashians crying over clothing and family drama, <laughs> like there are still opportunities in this world for overreactions and pettiness. The dryer buzzes and I grab the sheets out of it, their warmth sinking into my arms as I carry them upstairs. I start to make the bed and the cat wanders in, his claws clicking on the floor. I flick out the fitted sheets, spreading it over the mattress, and the movement sparks the interest of the cat as he jumps up onto the bed. As I tuck in the corners and smooth it out, he chases my hands, batting at the fabric. It's funny, at first. Crazy kitten, what are you doing? Do you think this is playtime? I say, laughing. But as I keep going, it gets increasingly more annoying. I even try taking him off and setting him on the floor a few times, but he keeps jumping back up. Can you stop it, man? Come on, I'm trying to fix it. Stop, stop it, David. I finally shout. I go quiet. The cat just blinks back, purring softly. I think he might have even been smirking, pleased with himself.
Yeah, and you'd like to put a shorter bio on the web page so that when people grab it, they, they just read for a minute. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for having me. I'm Marianne. I'm really delighted to be here. I've, thanks to Randy and to Chisitama. Am I saying that right? Which I, I'm just, I want to say I'm really impressed. This is actually kind of a, a big deal for a student literary magazine to be able to put together a reading series and organize this. And good job. <laughs> you should just all like be proud of everyone. I don't know who here worked on this, but all of you who did. Too bad, you know. Um, be, be, um, be pleased with yourselves. It's it, it's never easy making space for the arts, um, especially in the current social and economic climate when um, arts are not always valued. So it's great to see it's great to see people putting in the work. Um, just gets harder from here. <laughs> so I'm going to read. Uh, I think you'd ask me to read from both books. Yes. In about 20 minutes total. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's planned. So I'll read part. Of, yes. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, part of seven cups of water. Part of seven cups of water, and then something from the science fiction. Yes. yes? Okay. That's what you guys are going to get. So um, just to give you a little bit of context, seven cups of water is a story that takes place in Sri Lanka. Um, this book is starts in Sri Lanka in the 1940s and comes to America down two different family trees. And they are um, stories um, of relationships, parents, children, um, but also romantic relationships. So this one takes place in 1948. And I will say, um, I was actually inspired by some years ago, uh, some young lesbian women came to Chicago from Sri Lanka to participate in the gay games, and I ended up hosting them. And I was just so impressed with them, and you know that they were, you know, they were telling me that, in, you know, back in Colombo, they're out and they're walking the streets in couples, holding hands. And I remember how terrified I was in college the first time I like walked down the street holding hands with a girlfriend. Um, and like I felt like everyone was staring at me. So, um, so I was thinking about these young women and how it would have been for them if they had been born a few decades earlier. Um, so this is, you know, everyone has arranged marriages. My parents had an arranged marriage. They would have also had arranged marriages, right? So that was sort of the context going into the story. My brother's wedding day. The feasting lasted long past dark, and I went to bed exhausted. I peeled off my sweat-soaked sari, rinsing my body with cool well water before changing into the soft cotton sari I wore to sleep. The old woman had consulted the horoscopes of my brother and his young bride, had pronounced that this day and this month would be the luckiest, in fact the only day that would not bring down a thousand curses on the young couple. Never mind that it was also one of the hottest days of the year. There was no flesh left on the old woman's bones, nothing that could drip sweat. I'm sure they enjoyed making the young ones miserable. I thought that for once I'd be able to sleep. I'd been allowed a little Eric whiskey to celebrate Sundar's wedding, had danced with the other unmarried girls. My sister's friends giggled and preened as they danced, flashing dark eyes and slim brown bellies at the young men who lounged by the door drinking. I just danced. I had no interest in catching a man. Not that any would have spared a glance for me, too short, too plump mungai with coarse hair and flat chest. I danced for myself, not for them. 
danced until my feet were aching, until my arms and legs were lead weights. I danced until Sundar and his lovely Sushila were escorted to the bedroom, until the last piece of rich wedding cake was eaten and the last guest had gone. Only then did I bathe and change. Only then did I lie down on my bamboo mat, a few feet from my peacefully sleeping sisters, and still I could not sleep. It might have been the heat. Our house is near the ocean, and usually cool breezes fill the small rooms, but that night it was so hot that it was hard to breathe. I kept thinking it would get cooler, but instead it got hotter and hotter. Sweat dripped in uncomfortable trickles from my neck to my throat, from my breast to the hollow between them, pooling in my navel. My mouth was dry as dead leaves, and I finally rose to get some water. The house was silent. I left my sisters sleeping, past my parents' room and my brothers. I passed the main room, where dying flowers and bits of colored foil testified to the day's happy event, and finally entered my mother's vast kitchen. We weren't rich, but we did have one of the largest houses in the village. We needed it. I was the youngest of eight, cooking enough food for all of us took many hands and pots. The moonlight streamed in the window, illuminating the rickety table where my mother worked, the baskets of onions and garlic and ginger and chilies, the pitcher of water that was always kept filled. It was one of my mother's rules. If you drank from the pitcher, you refilled it from the well. With five daughters and three sons, she needed many rules to keep peace in the house. Not that we always obeyed them. I stepped over to the pitcher, took a tin cup from the shelf, and poured myself a cupful. Then I saw her. Sushila huddled in a far corner of the kitchen, her back pressed flat against the big mud walls, her crimson wedding sari pulled tight around her, so tight that the heavy silk seemed to cut into her fair skin. Folds of gold-embroidered fabric were wrapped around her fists, and those in turn were pressed tight against her open mouth. She looked as if she were trying not to scream, but she didn't move or make a single sound. I stepped toward her. Sushila? I knelt at her feet. Her knees were pulled up tight against her chest, and I rested a hand on one. Is something wrong? It was a foolish question, and after a moment I understood that I didn't deserve an answer. The cup was still in my other hand. At last, I stretched it out to her. Would you like a cup of water? She nodded and slowly lowered her fists. I raised the cup to her lips and tilted it so she could drink. Sushila took a deep gulp, draining half the cup. Her whole body shivered then, though the water couldn't have been cooler than lukewarm after sitting all night. She shivered again and again, her arms now hanging loose at her sides, her eyes wide. I didn't want to ask my next question. Did Sindar, did he hurt you? The words almost choked in my throat. I knew that there were men like that in the world, but Sindar, had always been the gentlest of us all. He'd even converted to Buddhism almost two years ago, had turned vegetarian and mourned every time he accidentally stepped on an insect. He'd never teased me like the others had. He'd protected me from the worst of our older sisters, oldest sister's rages. I didn't want to believe my favorite brother had hurt his wife, but there she was, shaking before me. Sushila shook her head. No. After a moment, the word came up and out of her throat. No. I was almost as glad to hear the sound of the word as the sense of it. There was a crippled child who lived in the alley nearby who could not speak at all. I raised the cup again 
and she drained it in another gulp. I put it down, not sure what to do next. She was still shaking. I leaned forward, pulled her into my arms. When she was completely enclosed in my arms, the white of my sari covering the red of hers, she turned her head so that her mouth was against my ear. Her breath was hot against my neck as she whispered, I'm bleeding. Before I could speak, she reached up and took my right arm, her fingers sliding down to my hand, pulling it down between us. Under the sari, the space between her thighs. Her legs were wet, and when I pulled, brought my hand up, the tips of my fingers were stained red. When Sushila saw the blood, she started to cry. I wrapped my arms around her and held her tightly, letting her cry against me. My second sister had shared every detail of her wedding night with us. She seemed to enjoy our shock and fascination. I knew Sushila was the oldest daughter in her family, and that her mother had died years ago of a fever. But didn't she have any aunts? I stroked her hair, so soft and fine, and told her quietly, it's all right. Her shaking eased, slowly, though the tears still fell hot against my neck, sliding down my chest and mixing with my sweat an indistinguishable mix of salty waters. I held her and rubbed her smooth back and whispered the words over and over until she understood. The next morning, over the first meal of the day, I asked her if she had slept well. Everyone laughed, and Sundar's face reddened. He'd inherited my mother's pale skin, and every emotion showed through. Sushila smiled demurely and assured me that she had. I was glad for her, but I hadn't slept at all. I had drunk cup after cup of water after she'd left, then refilled the pitcher from the well. A breeze had finally picked up, and the ocean's salt air filled the rooms, cooling my body stretched out on its mat, but still, I couldn't sleep. While cooking the midday meal, while eating, throughout the day, I watched Sushila, though I didn't speak to her again. She was slender and fair, a perfect foiled tall sundar, and she moved as if she were dancing. She was clever, too, telling small jokes that made everyone laugh. If I could only look like her, talk like her, but I might as well wish for Lord Krishna to come down and carry me off. That night I dozed for a few hours, but in the deepest hours I woke, Sweaty and damp, I needed water. I got up and walked down the hall. She was standing near the kitchen window, drenched in moonlight. I hoped you'd be awake, she said, turning as I came in. My tongue stumbled, but I managed to say, I just woke. Thank you for last night. Her face flushed, but her voice was firm and clear. There was no sign of the trembling girl I'd held in my arms. So Sheila heard herself, held herself straight and poised. You must think I'm very foolish. I don't think you're foolish. The moonlight shaded the planes of her face, the delicate curves. It was almost like looking at a statue. I could have stood there, watching her, for hours. Shouldn't you be in bed with your husband? I was thirsty. I often get thirsty at night. She was wearing white tonight, a thin gauze sari that barely covered her limbs. Sushila's small arms and legs made her look almost like a child, but she was 17, a few months older than me. I came for some water, but I couldn't find a cup. The cups were in plain sight. I reached up, pulling down the same one I'd used the night before. It had a small notch on one side. You had to drink carefully or you might scratch yourself. It was different from all the others, and my favorite. 
I lifted the pitcher and found that it was almost empty. Someone hadn't refilled it. I poured what water was left into the cup and held it out to her. As she stepped forward to take it from me, she stumbled, and her outstretched hand knocked against mine, spilling the water over both our hands, splashing onto the dirt floor. Sorry, she seemed frightened, though it was only water. It's all right, but that was all the water. I could draw more from the well, of course. Sushila sighed. I could see her breasts move under the thin fabric of her glass. I'm really very thirsty. She lifted her dripping hand to her mouth then and started to lick the water from it. Her tongue was small and licked very delicately with determination. She looked away every drop slowly as I watched. Still thirsty, I asked. Sushila hesitated and then nodded. I took a small step forward, bringing up my wet hand up to her opening mouth. She reached out a hand and gripped my wrist, surprisingly tight. She took the cup out of my hand and set it on the table. Then she brought my hand to her mouth and started to lick. I shivered. When she finished, having licked first the back of my hand, then the palm, and then taken each finger into her mouth, Sheila let go of my wrist. My arm dropped limply to my side. Her eyes were wide and still. Her head cocked to its side like a little startled bird. She bit her lip then said, I have to go back. Sindar might miss me. I nodded. She turned away and slipped, stepped quickly and quietly down the hall. I heard her closing the door to their bedroom behind her. I picked up the pitcher and went out to the well. I'm going to stop at that one there. This one is, first of all, I've never read this story in a church before. <laughs> it's a little unnerving. Um, so, um, so, but uh, the rest of it's on my website. It's free if you want to find out what happens. You can just Google, if you Google Marianne, I'm one of the first hits, so it's easy to find. And I've been on the net a really, really, really long time. So, uh, with age comes its privileges or something like that. So, um, so, um, so, things escalate, as you can imagine. And then, then they go badly. To find out what happens. So, um, okay. And I'll tell you a little bit about this and I'll read you a little bit from this one. Uh, this one is um, it's a South Asian university. It's a, it's a university in space on a planet settled by South Asians. Um, there is an ethnic conflict going on, but it's not a racialized conflict, it's the pure humans who are against the aliens and also against the genetically modified humans, right? Um, and this uh, story opens on the first night of the war, um, when people don't even really know they're in war yet, at war yet. So, all right, I'll just, I'll just read you a little bit of the first story. The night air, <sighs> which again, is not necessarily church appropriate. Randy, you did this to me on purpose. Um, <laughs> that you could read instead. Um, I, just want, I just want to make that clear. So I have stuff you could read in front of kids, but not this. Okay. Not fucking again. Literally fucking, which was the problem. Kimmy's upstairs neighbors, the skinny brown human and the curvy gold human, were at it again. For what? The fourth time tonight? The management could claim, however much it wanted, that the walls were supposed to be soundproof. The truth was that this was a shitty apartment, it clearly wasn't up to code, and when two grown adults decided to hurl their bodies together on a battered wooden bed, you could hear it. 
You would think, after getting the news that the war was finally on, after years of hate-mongering and human supremacist group posturing, the pair would have gone decently to sleep, but no. They were probably celebrating life or some such bullshit. Kimmy couldn't take it anymore. She shoved back the chair from her desk, grabbed a fur to wrap around herself, and headed out into the night. She just wanted to walk, far and fast and until her brain stopped buzzing. Sometimes walking helped. The streets were more empty than usual. Everyone who had someone was probably at home, cuddling them up, waiting for the bombs to fall or the shooting to start or the diseases to spread, or just for the chips in their heads to catch viruses, melt, and drip out of their brains. And yeah, the truth was that if she had someone, Kimmy would probably do the same thing. But she didn't, and that alone was enough to make it easy to glare at the people who were glaring at her, as they always did when they saw her walking around wrapped in fur. Fucking holier-than-thou types. How did they know that it wasn't synthetic? It could totally be synthetic. It wasn't, but they had no way of knowing that. Not unless they looked past the thick, bright, azure fur she wrapped around herself. Not unless they could look at Kimmy's own orange pelt, the pointed crimson ears jammed into a knitted calf, the clawed hands, the fucking tail, and correctly identify her as Verisian. Sure, if they did that, and if they then happened to be educated enough to be familiar with the adulthood rituals of her tribe, then they might recognize that the remains of the creature wrapped around her were, in fact, real, that it was her own kill, and that she'd managed to face down a dumb critter with three times her mass and armed only with what she could make herself after being dumped in the jungle. Jungle with a capital J, because it was the only real jungle left, huge and carefully preserved in the midst of Verisia, a world that had gone completely high-tech. And yet we still value our ancient rituals. Oh yes, we care about who we are as a people. And any youngling who can't survive the way our people did a thousand years ago, when they had no fucking choice, well that kid doesn't deserve to live, does she? Kimmy had survived it, but only just, emerging with three brutal scars scraped down her back that would tell her the weather the rest of her life. Not that she needed it here. The weather on Paroxana Major was always the same, always programmed cool, drizzly, and supposedly temperate. And you had to wonder what sort of colonial hang-ups these people had, that after going halfway across the galaxies, these, these sorry, that after going halfway across the galaxy, these descendants of Indians decided, oh hey, let's make sure our planet always feels just like jolly old England in the rainy damp springtime. Whose brilliant idea was that? Everyone else seemed to like it fine, but Kimmy was always fucking freezing here, and sometimes, truth be told, every damn day, she wondered why she bothered to come here at all. This was why she hadn't just opted out of the idiotic adulthood ritual, because only those who passed it, who survived it, were deemed by the planetary hierarchs to be acceptable representatives of their species to the outside universe. So fine, she jumped through their hoops, because if there was one thing she had wanted with the burning passion of a thousand white dwarf suns, it was to go to the University of All Worlds on Paroxner Major, where she could learn to program like the gods themselves. And here she was, for all the good it was doing her, so she was damn well going to wear her fur and all the judgmental vegetarian locals could just go fuck themselves. God, she hadn't had a steak in almost 10 years. It would be 10 years after the semester and the subsequent monsoons ended. More rain, 10 years of eating synthetic meat, and you could taste the difference with every bitter bite no matter what they said. Her advisor told her, sympathetically, that graduate school was an exercise in deprivation. And she had tried. <laughs> Professor will give you like, I know. <laughs> it is, it's true. And she had tried, uh, goddess knows, but this place had climbed into her brain, colonized her inside and out. She didn't even think of herself by her real name anymore, Kim Sriyali. 
but instead as Kimmy, a name that got plastered to her by an idiot grad student who touched her fur on the first day of orientation and said loudly, smiling, that the orange shade reminded him of his mother's kimchi, and if she didn't mind, he'd just call her Kimmy. And the worst of it was that he'd been dropped at Gorgeous, and Kimmy had been lonely, and she'd said, yes, Kimmy would be fine. And she smiled up at him. She did like a tall man. And that had cost her five years of work. She dated the bastard, helped him with his pathetic research, and then he bolted, taking her best results with him and claiming them for his own. He was clever with faking computer data. She hadn't given that. Clever at manipulating people. Clever at all sorts of things that didn't involve actually working. And so, five years in, she'd started over. New topic, new research, and a new resolve not to make the same mistake again. Kimmy got on the offense, finally, switched from defense systems to weapons. And though she'd never admitted to her mother with all her painful glorying and her supposed warrior heritage, Kimmy had to admit to herself that she had a knack for weapon systems. They were intoxicating. When she sank into the depths of the code, she felt on the verge of drowning or flight. A vow of celibacy had helped, along with a hell of a lot of time in the lab. Kimmy was almost there, almost ready to call it done, and now there was this stupid fucking war. She wasn't ready, and what idiots thought they could pull off an interstellar war anyway? Too big, too expensive, too likely to blow up in their faces, not to mention too fucking speciesist. Verisia was many jumps away and well defended, at least in theory, but they never actually had to use their ships in defense grid against a horde of humans. There were just so damn many humans. The war was being pushed by a fringe group now, just three of the human settled planets in alliance against the universe, or at least the non-human human parts of it. But if all the humans joined in, Kimmy knew in the cold center of her chest that her people were unlikely to survive. And then she meets somebody and stuff happens. I'm gonna stop there, so thank you all. <laughs>